Hi, Shono. Hi, sweetie. I'm Pavna. And I'm George. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty excited about this episode. Oh, okay, good. I want to ask you questions on behalf of our nephew Vedant. Okay. He was uh, supposed to be here this week. Right. And he couldn't make it because of the pandemic. Yeah, which is pretty sad. He lives in India in Amandagar, and he is my brother's son. And he has so many questions for you. He's 13, and he's just blossoming into a beautiful boy. And he's the only person in my family you haven't met face-to-face. Right. And these would be questions about, say, your mountain climbing days. Okay. Stories about how you got started, what are your fondest memories, and who were you with? So, just get us started. Do you have any memories when you were Vedant's age, for example? He's 13 now. Okay. Do you have any clear memories of being that age and doing something spectacular? When I was uh, 11 and 12 years old, yeah, my dad was half-owner of a small airplane. Okay. It's called a Luscom 8F. Yeah. There's two people you sat side by side. And the Luscombe was known uh, for two things. It was the fastest airplane in its little class. Mm. It, its cruise speed was a, over 100 miles an hour, so, okay. which was pretty spectacular with 85 horsepower. And it was, it was a pilot's airplane. Airplanes were becoming more and more, even the small airplanes, they were oriented towards sort of a business market where the air you could leave your hands off the controls and the airplane would just sort of fly mm. you didn't do that in alaska you you flew the airplane yeah and so in any case it was a delightful little airplane and my dad decided one day we were going to fly to ten thousand feet it's a small airplane you you went up you know a thousand two thousand feet yeah and you went to where you were going I mean, you just didn't, there was no reason to go to 10,000 feet. So the area that I grew up in, uh, air was pretty polluted. Mm. was the Canal River Valley in West Virginia. It was known as the Ruhr Valley of America. It was full of chemical plants. Mm. So this was, in many respects, America's chemical center. Mm. It was mm. had a huge Union Carbide plant, mm. had a huge DuPont plant. There's literally a town called Nitro. Mm-hmm. That's because they made nitroglycerin there. Mm. Had a big synthetic rubber plant. Uh, all of these plants were spewing bad things into the air and putting bad things into the water a lot of times, for that matter. My dad had told me, you know, we're going to go next weekend or whatever and fly the Luscombe to 10,000 feet. And even at 11 and 12 years old, I, I could fly the airplane. I wasn't allowed to land it, but I, I could fly it. So we went up. Well, getting... Getting to 10,000 feet was no simple matter. I mean, the the airport was a 1,000-foot elevation, 967 feet, actually. (laughs) You're going sort of in a big circle like a a bird on a thermal. Mm. And so we're going and we're going and we're going. You know, things on the ground are getting smaller and smaller. 
well, at about 5,000 feet, we just popped out above the haze, the pollution. I mm. mean, it was a very distinct layer. Mm. The sky was a blue that I have never, ever seen before. Mm. I mean, it was just amazing. These clouds were a white that I had never seen before. Big, puffy clouds that day. Mm-hmm. And then on the way back down, instead of just sort of coming straight down, my dad would fly into the edge of the clouds. So we were sort of dogfighting the clouds. I see. (laughs) And it was, so that was just fun. But I'll never forget popping out of this brown, literally brown air. Mm. You just don't see that kind of blue sky anywhere in the east. Mm. I mean, I think vegetation, uh, especially the forest, Along the the Appalachian mountain chain, I mean, there's the Great Smoky Mountains. Yeah. And that's because the trees emit things that put a haze in the air. Hmm. But, of course, the main thing, I'm sure, was the chemical industry where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And I think as I got a little older, I realized that, hey, if I lived out west and I lived in the high mountains, I'd see blue sky like that all the time. Hmm. So I think... I uh, just the sheer. It stayed with you. It stayed with me. Yeah. So. What's another thing that has stayed with you, and and you can well, clearly remember? A second thing that comes to mind is that I was older by now. I was in college, mm. but we went out ice skating mm. one on, on a full moon night. We went ice skating on a on a frozen lake. That day, it had snowed about an inch. Ice skating under the full moon, and the stars are out. Uh, it was that was magic. I don't know what that has to do with climbing. Sounds like a fairy tale. Yeah, it sounds like a fairy tale. So when you're ice skating on the on the lake, and there's a layer of snow, as you're skating, does the snow kind of burst? Like well, it's below the level of the skate chew. Oh. So you're you're flying. So I don't know exactly what that has to do with climbing, but somehow it's connected. It so. was a moment in your uh, young life that you felt you were one with the elements, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So another thing that contributed to the beginning of this was that in high school, uh, we met a... A fellow, his name was John Fuller. Mm. John Fuller's dad was a mining engineer, and John Fuller liked to go into caves. He had actually an electric miner's lamp. So we were kind of kind of tagging along with him. We had little acetylene gas lamps. You, you put a solid chemical in a little container and put water in it, and it gave off acetylene gas, mm. which you could... You could light the gas. So you basically had this little candle that you wore on your head Mm -hmm. for a light. And so we would go caving. And so that may have been started me in the the equipment part of the climbing. So time went on. And and, um, I think the first time that I was on a a mountain outside of West Virginia was... A friend, his name was Charles, and unfortunately his last name is escaping me. We d- went climbing in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Mm. I must have been in college at this time. Mm. 
But Mount Washington, the, the White Mountains have terrible, or they are capable of absolutely terrible weather. Okay. I mean, people have frozen to death at 15 feet from a door at the building. Uh, the highest recorded wind speed in the world was on Mount Washington at 237 miles an hour. So Charles and I, when you get at the base of the trail, you go up a little ways on the trail. So you're 19 or 18? Yeah, 19, 18, 19, somewhere in there. It would have been early in college. Mm. Gas was 10 cents a gallon. <laughs> So at any rate, you go up a little ways on the trail, and there's this big sign that you cannot miss. It's carved into wood. Mm. This area has the worst weather in the world. (laughs) If you're not equipped to be here, turn around now. And, of course, it's pretty doubtful that we were actually equipped to be there under any kind of bad weather. And so in any case, we were headed for a, a, a place on the map that we had spotted. It said spring. Right. It was some, I forget the name of the spring, but it's... Water. It was water. Well, we got up there. The weather is not looking so good. The wind is starting to blow. So this spring turned out to be a swamp. Oh, my. I mean, we had this vision of this bubbling little thing coming out of the ground. It was was really just a swamp. Mm. And at that time, we were uh, we didn't even have a stove. We were cooking on, we were dependent on finding some sort of wood to build a little fire to cook. I was kind of the cook, the expedition <laughs> cook on these things. And my specialty was a can of Denny Moore beef stew. Oh my God. Which is probably the top third of the can was, was solid fat. You know, at freezing temperatures, it was certainly solid. And so we gather up some sort of little wood and we find a crack in a rock Hmm. because the wind is blowing so hard. So we try to build a fire in the crack and the thought was we'd set the pot on top. Well, that didn't happen. So we ate the Denny Moore beef stew cold, which is (laughs) straight out of the can. It's It's not date material. You would not give it to a girlfriend. Does it taste good, though? Yeah, it was one of the best meals I ever had in my life. I wouldn't want to repeat it. But the wind was blowing so hard, there was no way to set up. Oh, what time of the day is it? Is it? Well, it's nighttime by now. No. It's dark. So eventually what we did, we just put on everything that we had with us. We stuffed the sleeping bags into the tent. It's not set up. It's just this... Yep bag on the ground, crawled into the sleeping bags, and that, that was it for the night. Blessedly, sometime in the night, the wind died down. Mm. We got up the next day. It was bright blue sky mm. where we were. Mm. There wasn't any, it was cold, but there wasn't any particular wind. Yeah. We were looking out over these clouds that were in all of the valleys, and I remember we had what we call gorp. It was a mixture of nuts and M&Ms and raisins. Trail mix. Trail mix. And uh, that was breakfast. Mm. So you were in college. So tell us, like, what was your schedule like? You would drive somewhere over the weekend and were you bunking classes? I I did not do well in college. Uh, (laughs) I I was not what you would call a gifted student. I mean, I spent way too much time ice skating over snowy lakes under full moonlight (laughs) 
and going to New Hampshire to climb mountains. And uh, so my academic career was not <laughs> was not what it could stellar. Was not stellar. You did okay though. You you graduated and moved to the West Coast, right. which is what you were you wanted to do. Right. You got a job, and you were in the state of Washington. Right. I got a job. I was in the state of Washington. And you met um, a number of people who were climbers and a real active community of of really athletic people. Right. But for, before that, I want to talk a little bit more. I lived in Cleveland, or I went to school in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. And there was a couple that lived in Painesville, Ohio, which is east of Cleveland, and they lived on the lake, okay. Lake Erie. In those days, the lake froze over, and you would get these storms coming out of the north, and it would push big blocks of ice up against the shore on the south side. And the, and the joiners lived, I don't know, two or three blocks from the lake. And they started a little club called the Cleveland Mountaineers. Hmm. That's an oxymoron. I mean, there are no... Uh, Northern Ohio has been scraped absolutely flat by a glacier some mm. time ago. Mm. So I was a proud member of the Cleveland Mountaineers, and one thing we did there, uh, when these big blocks would appear, if things seemed okay, we would all go out to the joiners... This is the couple. ...and do ice climbing, right, on the blocks, which mm. were made... They could get 20, 30 feet high. Mm. So eventually I made my way out to Seattle, Washington. Yeah. The mountains were closer, so I didn't have to leave on Thursday night and not come back till Monday night. So I could hold a job, but even then I was gone in the mountains all weekend long and some sick days. But Seattle had and probably still has a very active climbing community. It was, uh, I'm sure, much smaller in those days. Yeah. But I remember when I got to Seattle, it was July of, it would have been July 1965. I, one of the first places I went to it was a Paradise on the south side of Mount Rainier. Mm. I mean, it's literally July, the, the hottest, you know, it's the middle of summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, in West Virginia, you you would have been sweltering at 90, 95 degrees, mm. 98% humidity. I mean, it was... Yeah. Uh, so here I am in July at Paradise. The snow is piled literally about 12 or 14 feet high around the parking lot. And this is July. <laughs> They'd had a very good snow year that year. Mm. So, of course, I'm this... I've never seen that much snow in my life. Mm -hmm. And here there's a whole mountain covered with this stuff. And so that was that was my very first day. And I don't even know what I did that day. We must have gone and tramped around in the mountains. Yeah. Do you have a memorable story from climbing with your friends uh, in Seattle? My, my first... A trip to Mount Rainier where I actually did anything. Mm. A lady named Joan Hansen led uh, a mountain mountaineer club, a Seattle Mountaineers this time, though I was still proudly wearing my Cleveland Mountaineer patch. It's the only one in town. <laughs> and she led a little trip up 
on the glacier uh, below a mountain called Mount Ruth. And the winter before, Mount Ruth had had a little bit of a catastrophe. Mount Ruth has been cut in two by a glacier. So you have this vertical wall of lava rock, the, mm. the glacier, and it's very unstable. And the winter before, uh, several hundred thousand million tons of it came off. When you get a huge rock fall like this, it doesn't just sort of go down and drop on the glacier. It traps air underneath it. Right. And so you have this literally millions of pounds of rock sliding sliding on this air bearing down the glacier. It completely wiped out a campground. And at the places where it finally came to rest, there were trees that were four feet in diameter, say, that about 30 feet above the ground had just been... Sliced off. Sliced off. They were just gone. And, of course, the, the, whole, the whole campground was just covered in these huge boulders and so forth. So we went up the glacier. Below. And this was the previous winter this had happened. This so had happened things had settled previous, down. Things had settled down. So we went up the glacier. It was my first time on a glacier. Mm. I mean, really big time snow. Mm-hmm. Well, so people who were better prepared than I was had bought along uh, some some sort of sturdy cloth, like a, a big a dish towel, only sturdy stuff that they could sit on. Mm. Well, I didn't really grasp what this was about. I had my genuine army surplus green thick wool pants. And (laughs) we go up the glacier with Joan Hansen kind of showing us around and showing us crevasses, pointing out that we probably ought to not to go close to the crevasse, etc., I mean, it was a beginner's lesson on snow was Mm. what it was about. Mm. So we get up there, and people pull out their cloth things, and they start sliding down. I mean, you could slide for hundreds of feet, you know. Right. So, wow, that looked like fun, but I didn't have my cloth thing. So I started sliding down, (laughs) and, well, my wool wool pants really didn't last the length of the glacier. (laughs) So I had to tie a... A sweater or something around my back half <laughs> to make it to the car in some sort of dignified dignified way yeah <laughs> what was left of dignity <laughs> that was my first day out on big snow mm. and then I went on and and I climbed Mount Baker next with Jim and Nancy Mitchell mm. and then I climbed Mount Rainier at least two or three times mm. And, of course, after a month or so of this, I was in great shape. Yeah, I can imagine. So you've been all the way to the top of Mount Rainier. Yeah, at least two or three times. Yeah. How many hours does it take? Well, it's basically overnight. Kind of the standard tourist route, which is what I did. You start out at Paradise and you go up to a camp at... Paradise is 5,000 feet. You go up to a camp at 10,000 feet called Camp Muir. Okay. And you spend the night there, and then you get up at like four in the morning, and you start out in the dark, and you go up to the top of the mountain, and then that that day you can get back down to paradise in that day. Mm. So the last, I think the last time I climbed it, 
I had quite a few friends visiting me from the east. I uh, can't imagine why. <laughs> and uh, the last time I climbed it was with a, a friend named J.T. J. Anderson. Yeah, tell us about J.T. Well, he was a swimmer, and I think that gave him really good lung capacity because he was fine on the mountain. But mm. when you're when you're up high, the air gets thin, and you really begin to notice it about 11,000 feet. Mm. So also to go up in the snow, you have to do something called kick steps. I mean, you're going up a fairly good grade. The snow is up to somewhere but halfway to your knees or you're sinking into the snow. I mean, the snow is much deeper, but you're sinking in. Hmm. So what you do, you, you lift up one foot and you kick. You make a step. And then above about 11,000 feet, it isn't just kick, kick, kick. It's kick, kick, kick. Well, the person doing the kicking, you're on a 50-foot rope with another person. Right. The idea is if you fall in, they can immediately go down on their belly, get their ice axe in the, in the snow and try to get... This get whole, you out. whole thing stopped before you both disappear over the edge. So the back person is is just walking up your steps. Right. JT started the whistle. He was in the back? He was in the back. <laughs> yeah, I was kicking. I was doing the kick <sighs> routine, and JT was whistling. Well, another thing that happens when you get pretty low oxygen to your brain is you can become a little more volatile than you <laughs> little more might be <laughs> and so i don't know i the whistling i that that was just too much so i said you your rear end up here and you kick steps and let's see how you whistle then <laughs> so jt took over kicking steps for a while <laughs> but coming back down the other thing I remember that day, I mean, we're carrying, you know, 30, 40-pound packs. Coming back down, you, you encounter lots of people in what's called the Muir Snowfield. It's a big snowfield between Paradise and Camp Muir. So these people are, say, five to 10,000 feet, either 8,000 feet, and they're a little groggy. I mean, it's probably they've not been anywhere near that high perhaps forever or long time anyway. They're not in great shape to start with. They've walked up from Paradise. So JT and I literally ran from Camp Muir to Paradise, <laughs> carrying our packs. Uh-huh. And these people were staring at us like we'd come from some other some other planet. Uh-huh. It was, uh-huh. So that was a fun day. Yeah. And again, a very nice day. So a day that was not so nice it was the winter okay. winter time on mount Rainier. the weather was bad okay the wind was blowing so the snow was it was snowing but the snow was just going horizontally you could see maybe 15 feet mm. i don't know mm. not not very far mm. and we were i mean we weren't trying to climb the mountain we were just out in the snow We'd never been in weather like this before, so we were just out there. It was just the two of you? Just the two of us, mm-hmm. and we were just horsing around above Paradise. But we're on a 50-foot rope. Mm. Tracy had done the lead. I'm coming up the rope, and he's pulling in the rope for the belay. I mean, I can't even see him. You yeah. know, we're, 
the snow is, the wind is howling. I mean, it's very noisy when the wind can make a huge amount of noise. I get, and he's this fuzzy figure coming out of the fog, and mm. and he starts shouting. He says, I just love extremes, don't you? <laughs> so that kind of summed it up. <laughs> that was a good day that I remember. Yeah. Let me finish with a, a better weather day. Yeah. It was also the winter. It was the south side of Mount Rainier. Mount Rainier's a pretty big mountain. Mm. Uh, it was 4, 4, or 14,412 feet when I was climbing it. I, I mean, that changes because it's snow at the top, and I don't know what the official distance is. And also, it's a volcano, which mm. is not has not been active for a while, but... In any case, there's a whole mountain range on the south side of Mount Rainier called the Tatouche Range. Tatouche? Tatouche. Hmm. And so sometime in the winter, and there's a road that goes around the south side of Mount Rainier to the east side of Rainier. You, they keep the road from Paradise to the west open all year. You can go up to Paradise and ski uh, or climb if you wanted to do Mount Rainier in the winter. All, all year long, uh, uh, and unless they have a really bad snow and they have to close the road. Yeah. Two-thirds of the way up to Paradise, there's a side road that goes east. Hmm. But they don't plow that road in the winter. We had skis, and we went up that road and started out across. When we started out, it was in the cloud, but as we got up higher, we broke out into sunshine, which is always... It's like flying molluscum. Mm -hmm. It's always magical Mm. that you're in this cloud and all of a sudden the sky is the bluest blue you've Mm -hmm. ever seen. And and so we're on skis. Uh, It's not downhill. We're skiing along the road, cross-country skiing. And the Tatush Range, There's. I remember there was a lake on the, to our left side as we were going east, so toward the mountain. And the Tatush Range was to our south side. And the Tatush Range had these big basins. Mm. And so we went up the ridge between two basins, some of it on skis, some of it climbing on the, on the ridge. Kind of got crossed over to the to the middle of the basin at the top of the basin. Mm. So this is snow that's never been skied on mm. ever. I mean, there are no tracks whatsoever in this snow. So again, that was another magical day. It was just fresh powder snow. So you skied down the we skied, basin? skied down the basin, right. Mm. Everybody making their own path through the basin. Mm-hmm. So that was... Uh, that sounds beautiful. Yeah, it was really beautiful. Yeah. Another thing I remember that was the another thing I remember that was the the Seattle Mountaineers had a cabin at Stevens Pass. Mm. Stevens Pass is uh, in the Cascade Mountains uh, near Seattle. But my my Christmas there, the Christmas and New Years of 65 65 66 uh, I mean, you could reserve a spot in the cabin. It was just a cabin with bunk beds in it and a kitchen mm. and a bathroom. Mm. But I remember my first sight of the cabin. <laughs> There's snow up to the eaves of the roof line. Yeah. And then kind of this, not a tunnel, but a canyon dug to the door. Yeah. Forest with huge trees and 
Uh, it was that was just a magical place. Were you with a girl by any chance? Oh, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> there were women in your mountain climbing group. There were a lot of, of ladies in the mountain climbing group. I mean, I was much less aware in those days of these things, but I I think it was one thing. They they would have had a harder time with the, really, the technical rock climbing stuff where testosterone is really helpful. Mm. But just trooping up and down the mountain... I mean that's doable by any anybody who who can or wants to put in the effort. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of ladies, and they were like I said, Joan Hansen led the very first thing that I had ever been on. Nancy Mitchell was another lady that comes to mind, but there were many others, mm-hmm. which was a good thing. When I hear these stories, I feel very happy that you got to experience these moments and really have a sense of the outdoors in a, in a way that I can only imagine. I feel very happy for you and envious of you. <laughs> and I feel that you got a real education. Oh, I got a tremendous education. And the education came from the mountains, the trees, the rivers, the people you were with. Uh, the idea that you were together. This is such a different education from the stuff we get from books and teachers. And right. I mean, teacher in, in an academic setting, institutions, uh, certificates and degrees. Right. I got one and I did not get the other at all. Right. You've gotten a bit of both. I've gotten a bit of both. You know, when you're, we've talked about this before, when you're on a rope with somebody... On a big mountain, be it a big rock or big snow or... I mean, things can happen that are quite dangerous. And you're really totally depending on that other person to take care of you. I mean, you're completely counting on the fact that they'll do what needs to be done to take care of you. And you would absolutely do the same for them. Yeah. So it seems like you're talking about the education of the body... You know, the body understands, the body has to inhabit this space, the body is outside among the elements that the body is actually made of. It enables you to move through space and it enables you to have a knowledge that that is based on instinct, you know, that's based on uh, an understanding that that we are made of these elements, I think. I mean, I just don't have that sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like I have had, have spent very little time out in the forest or hardly any time in the ocean. I don't feel my body understands what, what that's like. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is you're you're learning some sort of procedure. Okay. I mean, if you're flying an airplane, it's drilled into you what to do if something goes wrong. Like a skill, you mean? Like a skill, right? Or if you're climbing a mountain with somebody, you have certain skills that you have to learn before you can proceed. Primarily, what it means to be on belay. That is to have a rope around your back tied to another person that you keep them from falling. Yeah. I grew up in a pretty unpo- a relatively unpopulated place. I mean, you could still see stars. Yeah. 
you could still you could easily go to a place where it was very quiet. I mean, you know, we we were literally made in the stars. We're the product of supernovae explosions. Yeah. We could not have a more intimate connection than what we have with the stars. Mm. And yet we've put ourselves in this situation where the vast bulk of us can't even see the stars. Mm. We're completely unaware that they're out there. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a loss. Yeah. Plastic in the ocean is a loss. Plastic in the ocean is a loss, yeah. right. But you're much more cerebral about the whole, you know, I was just doing it. One thing well, I, that's one, all I have is the uh, cerebral. Yeah, yeah, right, that's all you've <laughs> I got. Mean, I mean, I have read um, books, I've heard your stories, and I can imagine, and I have a sense, because we've done some traveling, of what that might be like if you were really able to get into a running stream of water and sit on a boulder. I don't, I've seen it, but I don't have a physical knowledge of it. (laughs) And I've tried to drag you as close to it as we can get and force you through going through what we can do. And, uh, And you stepped up magnificently. That is fodder for the next episode, in fact. Oh, okay. Okay. When do I get to talk about driving the steam engine? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you're always fun, sweetie. Thanks, Shano. I think this is sweet and wonderful and a very deep uh, conversation with you and your stories about climbing, stories about friends you were with are just my favorites. I want to thank our listeners for being with us on this journey. Yes, thank you. We are with you. We are uh, excited to share these really particular moments in our lives with you. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at hitherishonu at gmail.com. Namaste all. Namaste all. Be good to one another.